if I were to teach a class on weight loss, nobody should listen. Because I've never struggled with it. I have no idea what it would be like to struggle with your weight. Nothing I've ever dealt with. If I wanted to preach a message on suffering, you could argue that nobody should listen to that either. Because the reality is, I don't know anything about suffering. I have never suffered for my faith. I've never really suffered in any way that you can measure suffering. I don't know that I can say that I've really suffered. I've just... You know, you go through some valleys and some tests and some trials, but I don't know if it's really suffering or not. I, I just, I can't say that I've suffered. Um, so if I were telling you what it would be like to suffer, then you probably shouldn't listen to me because I don't know anything about it. But we have a gift in the New Testament, a specific book, and this book deals with suffering. And so today we're going to look at um, what um, who, at a man who is called the Apostle of Hope, which is interesting because it's interesting that a man who we call the Apostle of Hope is the man that chose to write the book on suffering. That's interesting, isn't it? The book of First Peter has the word suffering, variants of the word suffering, 16 times. A few weeks ago, I was reading through the book of First Peter, and I just was just noticing just the recurring theme of suffering in this book. And I wrote some notes down, and you know, in the back of my head, I I, I said, you know, there's 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 a sermon right here that. I should preach sometime, and I should have known that DK was about to ask me, but it didn't really cross my mind, but anyway, he did. Um, anyway, uh, so today, I really want to dive into First Peter. Um, I, I, I have to admit, um, this ballooned into a much larger conversation than I expected it to, and so um, anyway, we'll, I, I hopefully, um, um, anyway, uh, I just do what I can here. Um, First Peter was written to, and you can turn your Bible, open your Bible to First Peter. We're going to be all over the book, so um, if there's a text verse, uh, actually I'll get to that, but um, the, the little background on the book, the book of First Peter was written to, a, to an audience of primarily Gentile believers. Um, these believers were um, suffering under the rule of the Emperor Nero, who I'm sure you know from history was a very cruel emperor. Um, it's not clear from the book of First Peter if, if the Christians that he was writing to were suffering physically, if they were giving their lives, if they, was, if, if they were actually at the point of bloodshed, or if it was just um, more uh, discriminatory in nature or verbal in nature. Um, chapter 4, verse 4 says, um, that the Gentiles speak evil of you when you don't share in their sinful lifestyle. Um, and so we, we don't know. We don't, we don't know the condition of, of um, you know, what these believers were facing, but it's clear that Peter wrote the, the, the book to a wide, uh, it says the, the, the elect exiles, um, 
uh, is who the book is addressed to. In verse 13, chapter 1, there's a key verse, and I think it's, it's, um, it's, if there's a text verse uh, for this sermon this morning, it's, it would be this verse. And I'm going to read it in the King James because I think the King James has um, incredibly, uh, I, just, I appreciate the language here. He says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you're thinking, like my son was, what in the world does that even mean? And it's a good question, and I had to go and figure it out myself. Um, so, basically, if you were a man living in the first century and you were wearing a robe, it was really hard to do anything that required physical action. Um, and I'm sure ladies can probably appreciate that. Um, and so before you could really do anything um, physically in nature, um, you would have to pick up your robe and tie it around your waist. And that became known as girding up your loins. Gird up your loins. Get ready for action. In fact, the ESV, uh, ESV is clear. Um, in, in, in their interpretation, they say, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded and set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare your minds from, for action. Gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready. There's no room for passivity and Peter's exhortation about how to grapple with suffering. There's no room for passivity. In fact, there's, n- there's not really any pity either. Um, um, so today we're going to look at what perspectives we can learn about suffering from Peter. The first, there's, I really have um, six. Foundationally, we first have to know who we are. We have to know who we are and where our hope is. That's the first one. The second one is we have to suffer for the right reasons. The third one is your suffering is a platform for spreading your faith. The fourth one is your suffering is not a license to be a victim. The fifth one, your suffering is a revelation of God's glory. And the final one is your suffering, uh, you are not, you are not alone in your suffering. Now, candidly, probably every one of these points is a sermon. And uh, I am foolish enough to try to handle them all in, in, in 45 minutes. Um, there's three sections of the book of First Peter. The first section is chapter 1, verse 1 to 13, where Peter really deals with who you are in Jesus, who your identity is as a child of God. The second session is from a verse, chapter 1, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 11, where Peter's, Peter's dealing with this is who, because of Jesus, this is who you are. So this is how Jesus has changed you. This is the change that Jesus has wrought in your life. And then the final section of the book of Peter, 1 Peter, is from chapter 2, verse 11, to the end of the book, where he says, where he really deals with, um, he deals with um, various vocations. And, and how, and, and he introduces this section with, now go and let your life among the Gentiles be above reproach. 
And then he goes and he lays out different ways of being in the world. Maybe you're an emperor or a wife or a husband or an elder um, or a servant or a boss. And he lays these things out and he says, here's how to show up in the world um, to, to be above reproach among the Gentiles. Um, so that's the three sections of the book of First Peter. But first of all, if we're going to suffer well, we have to build a foundation. We have to have a foundation for our lives, a foundation of meaning, a foundation of purpose. Um, um, we have to know who we are. You know, in fact, as I was thinking about it, this whole question of who you are, who are you, is probably one of the most Maybe one of the most important questions we can ask about ourselves. Who are you? Who are you? Your answer to that question probably reveals a lot about you. Um, You know, I was thinking about, you know, if I asked this crowd, who are you? I'd probably hear, oh, I'm a a child of God. I'm redeemed. I'm I'm beloved. I'm, you know, whatever. Um, However we answer that question to other Christians, right? Uh, That's what I'd probably hear. If I ask that question um, when you're at the family reunion, it might be, oh, I'm, I'm the son of John and the grandson of Kenneth and, you know, whatever. Um, if, it, if you ask this question, you know, walking down the street, it might be, you know, I'm, you know, you know I'm, a, I'm a designer. I'm, a, I'm an artist. I'm a, a CEO. Um, but, but, but Peter answers this question. Peter answers this question for us. He says, you are... Elect exiles. You're elect exiles. Now, before you say, well, that was just to that audience, read the book of First Peter and figure out if he was to- talking about, if he referred to them as exiles because they were truly exiled, or did he refer to them as exiles because they weren't home? Um, so you're elect exiles. You're born again. You're guarded by God's power. You're tested by trials. You're lovers of Jesus. You're believers in Jesus, even though you can't even see him. You're recipients of grace. You're served by prophets. And you're possessors of truths that angels can't even look into. That's who Peter says you are. This is our hope. It's our hope. It's what keeps us going. It's what Peter says, uh, set, your, set your, uh, your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed. This is our hope. Uh, it reminds me of, um, uh, we watched as a family, we watched the, um, the play of Samson uh, uh, that Sight and Sound produced Friday night, which just, they did a phenomenal job. But one of the things, if you watch that, one of the things I liked, the way they chose to present Samson was um, you know, just the, the dialogue that he had with his parents as he was growing up. And his parents were continually telling him, Samson, you are not like other people. You, you can't have grapes. You're, yes, I know your hair is long. It's, you, you know, and so continually they were telling Samson, you're not other people. You're not other kids. You're different. You're set apart. You have been set apart for a specific reason, for a specific purpose. Um, and that's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying, you are not other people. This church is not other people. You're not other people. You have been set apart for a purpose. You are a chosen race, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 9. You're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people that's been called out for God's possession. 
that you can pro- may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We come to chapter 1, verse 13. He says, now gird up the loins of your mind. Go get ready for action. Get ready to do something. Um, you need, yes, marinate in this truth. Marinate in this truth about who you are, about the fact that God has redeemed you. Marinate in that. Now soak it in. Make sure it's a solid foundation. And now there's action that should come out of it. There's action that should come from your life. Uh, he says, our hope, our hope should be fully set on the grace that is going to be revealed. Now, I know you guys know, but there's a huge difference between a hope that's like, you know, I hope that we're going to have ice cream for dinner. Okay, that is a hope that there's no sure, there's no, um, there's no expectation in that hope unless you guys habitually have ice cream for dinner. In which case, maybe we should go back and I should teach about weight loss. Never mind. Um, but but uh, uh, so uh, so so um, what Peter's saying is there's a this is a different kind of hope, right? He said there's a difference between hoping for something and having my hope placed in something. One is a possibility. The other one is an expectation, right? Um, so, and I was thinking about that. I was like, how's, what's different language that I could use around this, this, this expect, this expectant hope. Um, and I, I was thinking, you know, it's kind of like the eyes of your soul. This hope is the eye of your soul. And I, I was thinking, imagine being on a long journey, uh, on foot through a blizzard and you've met a traveler and he says, Hey, just ahead, there's a beautiful inn that has a blazing fireplace and by the way, they make the most extraordinary hot chocolate. And you know it's up there. You just don't know where. That is a hope. And it's a hope that when the weariness just overwhelms you and you want to stop, it's just too hard. And you're just going to stop and go to sleep. It's, you, you can't go another step. It's that hope that serves to propel you onwards one more step. And that's what Peter's saying, that we need to set our hope fully on this grace that's going to be revealed to us. So what is the grace that's going to be revealed? Peter, I think, is joining with this New Testament theme of saying that what you're, what you're experiencing right now, this is not the end. This is not it. Um, this is not our home. We, we're in a war zone right now. We're not on vacation. Uh, Paul says that the sufferings that we currently experience, the sufferings of this present time, are not even worth comparing, uh, not even worth comparing to the, to the glory that's going to be revealed. Jesus said, I'm going somewhere and I'm going to prepare a place for you. So, so I think as we look at this passage, there is a theme of just, okay, we're looking forward to something else. There's definitely that. But I think if, if we look at Peter's statements in chapter 1, verse 1 to 13, there's something else here. And I, as I looked at this, I'm, I'm going to read some of these statements. And I want you to see if you can detect just this undertone of homesickness that Peter has. Peter says there's an inheritance that we still haven't received. There's a salvation that still hasn't been revealed. There's grieving and there's testing 
that's producing something that's, that's, that's a lot more precious than you can imagine when Jesus returns. There's a faith that we have that's in a God that we've never even seen. He refers to his audience as elect exiles. Do, do you hear that tone of homesickness that Peter has? He's saying, I'm, there is something bigger that's coming. And I believe that Peter is saying, saying here to, to the weary traveler, to the tired and persecuted Christian, to the sufferer, he's saying, lift up your eyes. Your current affliction is so momentary. It's a blink of an eye. It's going to be here, and then it's going to be gone. And as I believe Paul says, there's a weight of glory that far exceeds what we see right now that will be revealed. Just ahead, there's an inn with a roaring fireplace and that cup of hot chocolate. That's what Peter's saying. And he's saying, prepare your minds by setting your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed. Um, by the way, that word grace, that is an extremely versatile Greek word. And, you know, that's, you know, you can think sweetness, reward, thanks. Uh, you know, we, we, that's one of those Christian words we read and we just, you know, it's, it's a little squishy in terms of, you know, what does that even mean? But set your hope fully, set your hope fully on the, I was thinking, you know, just the amazing goodness of God that's going to be revealed on the other side of this. Set your hope fully on that. Um, this is not our home. That's what Peter's saying. This is not your home. Set your hope fully on what's to come. Don't set your hope on politics. Don't set your hope on the stock market. Don't set your hope on your future spouse. Set your hope fully on the grace that is going to be revealed. And that, then he pivots. Verse, chapter 1, verse 13, he pivots and he says, all right. And it's interesting, as you read the language of the first part, it's all about Peter's, he's just pouring into the, this is who you are, this is who you are. And then verse 13 rolls around, and, he, and then he, he pivots and he says, now, this is who you need to be because of Jesus. And he says, don't disrespect, I'm summarizing this, uh, uh, verse 13 to chapter 2, verse 11, I'm summarizing this. He says, don't disrespect the sacrifice of Jesus. And again, this is preparing us for what Peter wants to teach us about suffering. Don't disrespect the sacrifice of Jesus. There's going to be, there is going to be an impartial judgment. Those people that are persecuting you now, there is going to be a judgment. There's going to be an impartial judgment. But you know that you were ransomed by the blood of Jesus. You have a unique privilege in that you get to call the impartial judge your father. That's a unique privilege. But Peter says... Don't misuse your family relationship with the judge. He's saying, you, you've been born again. Now, it, your second birth isn't like your first birth. It's not going to pass away. You've been born again. You have, an, you have an eternal bloodline now. And so because you're going to be around forever, Peter says, you really should learn how to love the people you're around. That's what Peter says. He says, since you've been born again to a life that doesn't perish... You better learn how to love each other. Love each other earnestly and sincere from a pure heart, Peter says. And I love this phrase. He says, if you have tasted, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, <clears throat> why doesn't he just say, if you know the truth? 
Why doesn't he just say, if you've read your Bible or if you, you know, why does he say if you've tasted the Lord is good? But he says, if you tasted the Lord is good, then put away malice, put away hypocrisy and deceit and envy and slander. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, those things have no place in your life because you know who God is. You know he's good. I don't need to be jealous of you. I don't need to pretend. I know who God is. And if I'm dealing with hypocrisy and deceit and envy in my life, maybe I just need a revelation of the goodness of God. You have a transformed life, Peter says, because you have received God's mercy. You have a transformed life because you've received God's mercy. We together, we are a testimony to the world of how good God is. Your life is that story to the world. What a good God you have. What a great God you have. We have a tremendous platform. And this is what Peter's saying. Um, we have a tremendous platform um, and, and an opportunity to transformationally experience God and let it impact the world. And this leads us to chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter says, he says, here's how you do this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. I'm sorry, I said verse 13, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of their visitation. And that's the backdrop. So this backdrop of who we are leads us into Peter's discussion on suffering. Suffering is not a topic that we enjoy hearing about. It's not our favorite topic. Suffering isn't what you go and look for when you really want encouragement. When you really want to glorify God, you don't say, man, I hope I get to suffer today. There's a lot, there's other ways that we can think of to glorify God that are, are much more pleasant. Peter does not address this book to you poor, suffering Christians. I am so sorry about the tough things you're going through. Here's what he says. He says, you are elect exiles, uniquely chosen by God. Foreordained, verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Foreordained, for, uh, for, is that what he uses? Uh, for, according to the foreknowledge of God, it's no accident that you right now are where you are to reveal God's goodness to the world's deepest need in the middle of your suffering. It's not an accident. God knew it. He knew before the foundation of the world that today you would be where you're at right now. And by the way, do you think... God uses suffering, and I, I'm not questioning that at all. 
But God is not the author of suffering. That suffering wasn't his original design. In fact, Peter says Satan is roaring, walking around about like a roaring lion trying to devour. And he's trying to use suffering as a way to devour. Do you think that just because we're sitting here in the United States of America that Satan has quit trying to devour? We know that's not true. We've seen it. Pity is not the theme of this book. Pity is not the theme of this book. Get ready for action is the theme of this book. It's a, this book is out action in the face of opposition. I remember, I'll never forget, I was sitting at lunch one day with a friend, and this guy was, you know, 60 years old. I don't know, he's an older guy. And he said, he said, Luke, life is hard. And the sooner you get your mind around that, it'll quit being hard. I just remember that. It's, and I feel like that's kind of what Peter's doing in this book. He's saying, church, it's going to be tough. But you're not home yet. You should expect it. You're not there yet. This isn't where you belong. You are an elect exile. So we really have to have a conversation about Christian culture before we talk about what Peter says. And I don't know if it's just me and my awareness, but it sure seems like that there's been a shift in the church that, I don't know, maybe, I think we embrace the idea that, Okay, um, Sigmund Freud, the, uh, the founder of modern psychology, says the chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is pleasure. It's all about pleasure. If it makes you feel good, that's your meaning in life is to experience pleasure. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, in some ways we've kind of felt that in the church a little bit. You know, if it's not making you happy... You know, we, we, have, we have different language around it. If it's not giving you life, right? If it's not giving you life, then right, that's, that's not from God. And, and there's some element of truth to that, right? I mean, that, that is not altogether wrong. And so, like everything in life, it's a balancing act. And, and so, there is, you know, some truth to that. But th- there's this ditch that's Sigmund Freud, too, and where, where um, actually... God calls you into suffering, and that's a, that's a biblical call. Um, in fact, it's probably one of the most biblical calls that there is, um, just to be completely honest. Um, so in Christian culture, there's contemporary notion that God would never require anything that's distasteful to me. Um, if it isn't giving me life, it's not from God. Um, you know, how could this be from God if it causes me pain? You know, how could God ask me to stay in a marriage that's not, you know, making me happy? How could God, you know, God wouldn't do that. Um, So, but we make an assumption. When we say that, and even when we don't say it, but when we think it, we're assuming something. And the, the, the thing that we're assuming is this. We're assuming if God is good, why am I suffering? A good God would never ask me to suffer. That's the assumption behind that. A good God would never ask me to suffer. Um, 
I want you to understand something. Peter makes an assumption as well. He makes an assumption about suffering. And here's what his assumption says. His assumption says, um, um, 1 Peter 4, chapter 1, he says, um, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, If God suffered in the flesh, then why in the world would you ever expect anything different? That's Peter's assumption. Peter says, if, if God suffered, how do you think you won't? We suffer because we are not home yet. We are not home yet. We are not on vacation by the sea, as C.S. Lewis says. But we are still in a war zone. So does Peter, what does Peter have to teach us? As I was thinking about this and as I was reading this, I was thinking, my mind... I haven't experienced suffering. I've already admitted that. I've already told you that. I'm not sitting here from a platform of telling you how to suffer well because I've experienced it. I'm looking at First Peter going like, there's something here that I need to prepare my mind for action in regarding. regarding. Um, I don't want to be taken by surprise. I, you know, if, 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 if God would allow me to suffer for him, I don't, I don't want that to surprise me. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick Ripkin in his book, um, um, Insanity of God, he says, he says the church can never, the church cannot find strengthened in persecution what they didn't take into it. I Meaning, if, if, if you're planning to wait till you're under fire to, to, to let your faith grow, there's, there's a good chance it might die. Um, um, so what does Peter tell us about suffering? Um, first of all, um, I think we can invalidate our suffering and I, I, am sure I'm, you know, it's probably suffering is real. And even if you're not behind bars, our enemy is out to destroy. And that is what we call suffering. Our enemy is out to kill, steal and destroy. And we know that, um, first of all, to suffer, we need to make sure that we're going to, we're suffering for the right reasons. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, um, he, uh, Peter says, um, he says, what credit is it when you sin and you get beaten for it? What credit is that? And, and then he says, it's kind of the same thing in verse, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, uh, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or meddler. Um, I recently had the opportunity to speak with, to interview a guy, and and before I did that, somebody I, I happened to coincidentally talk to somebody who knew him, and uh, 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 I'm going let me call his name Pete. So I was interviewing Pete. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there's a Pete here, so I don't know Pete. So um, uh, so uh, anyway, so I talked to somebody who knew Pete, and 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 he said uh, he said Luke. Don't hire him. He's uh, and yeah, definitely not. And I was like, okay, you know that's good info. I tried to poke on it. You know what, what's what? You know what's behind that? He says this guy has no idea how to manage his anger. No idea. Very angry man. Like, okay, that, that's good, good, good info. So I already had the interview scheduled, so I interviewed him and I was you know chatting with him and 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 I noticed that you know job history was a little spotty and. And, and I said, you know, I said, oh, yeah, tell me about that last role you had. And he said, oh, he said, let me tell you. He said, 
He said, yeah. He said, um, you know, it was, it was, um, it was, I was just persecuted. Okay. <laughs> That's not what you normally hear. Yeah. He said, they found out I was a Christian and they were just after me. Just out to get me. Corporate wouldn't even return my calls. <laughs> and I was like, I don't even know where to start, but, uh, um, you know, doing life poorly because of our own character problems does not count as suffering. That's what Peter's saying. If you're going to show up to the world as a Christian, then do life as a Christian, but don't blame your character problems on Jesus, please. And if you find yourself with a track record of blaming your character problems on Jesus, just stop and get some perspective. You know, I mean, we go through things. Um, um, but doing life poorly because of our own character problems does not count, on, count as suffering. Don't blame that on Jesus. Um, there's a lot of other things that we can do for Jesus, but that's not one of them. Um, your suffering, so second point, your suffering is a platform for spreading your faith. Maybe even the best platform. It may be, your suffering may be the best platform you ever have to spread your faith. First Peter uh, 2.15 says, This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That's a good start in evangelism. This, is not, this does not say that by being the most vocal person on Facebook, you can put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's about letting the quality of your life prove something about who Jesus is. Uh, 2.16 says, live as people who are free. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God and honor everyone. Honor everyone. Um, we have a tendency in America to be, we can be dishonoring to people. I, I should, I, let me, let me, let me, let me back up. The internet has given us a tremendous platform to be incredibly dishonorable and never be accountable for it. And I don't think the internet gives us a cop out on this. We need to show up to the world as honorable people. When Peter says, when we answer people who question us, when we're answering people who who, who question us, he says we should use gentleness and respect, always keeping our conscience clean so that when we get slandered, the people who revile us could be put to shame because their claims are absolutely baseless. That is a high standard to live out, a very high. It is so easy to let my response not be respectful and not be gentle. Suffering can only be a platform for evangelism when it is appropriately engaged. And in my mind, it is not a platform we want to waste. We do not, I do want to be clear, we're not here courting martyrdom. That's not the goal of our lives. Our responses to people can either be gracious and gentle or they can be arrogant and reproachful. Just because we have a hammer <clears throat> doesn't make everything a nail. And just because we have the truth doesn't mean that how it's wielded is of no consequence. I, I, I can't remember the book I was reading, but I, I read a book about early church history. And they talked about how 
the, the church fathers had to kind of put together some parameters about if you actually wanted to be considered a martyr, then you had to, you know, here's what it would look like. And the issue was that there were so many people just getting killed for stupid reasons. Because they were just like, oh, yeah, you're a doctor, Jesus. And they were, whoa, 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 that's not what we're doing here. Okay? Um, so um, there's no glory. Here's, there, here's what I'm saying. There's no glory in dying for Jesus because we were being stupid. There's no glory in that. Um, so how else can suffering be a tool for evangelism? You know, it's interesting uh, chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Peter is giving specific instructions to wives. And he says this. He says, if some, he says, be subject to your husbands, even if some do not obey the word. And I think this, in, this concept could be applied to husbands or wives. Um, he says, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. You know, I've learned not to assume anything. I've learned that even inside of Christian circles, there can be Christian men who, not, who do not act like Christian men. And so if you're a wife that's been living this out for years, I want to thank you for your example. I want to thank you for what you've done. I know people in that position of living out a respectful and pure conduct for years on end, waiting for change to come. I have a friend of mine who's probably 50, uh, he's 55 or so, married for, I don't know, at least 20, 25 years. Um, for years, he prayed, for, he told me a couple months ago, he said, I'm done. I'm, I'm done. I can't go another day. His wife was incredibly abusive and it's just a tough situation. And um, I said, you know, I just tried to encourage him. I go, what do you say? What do you say to somebody in that position? I, I tried to encourage him. And then a month later I saw him and he said, you would not believe what happened this month. It was, it was miraculous. Complete. 180 degree. There's hope. Went from literally on the edge of divorce to hope. And, which is exactly what I was praying for. I said, Lord, just give him some hope. Uh, but... I, you know, I just thought, you know what, there's always hope. We have to, John Stone Street says, um, you know, it's so easy for us in the middle of our lives, we can think this is it. And we can think that our moment, the moment of our lives is the entire story. That's all there is. The moment of our lives are the entire story. He says, you have to understand the moment of your life and the context of the story. You're just... A speck of sand. Understand that speck of sand in the context of the entire story. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that's in you. What is the reason of the hope that's in you? Why are you hopeful in the middle of suffering? What gives us hope in the middle of suffering? You know, I, there's probably a dozen reasons, but I think the biggest reason is, is we have a God who conquered, who suffered, I'm sorry, we have a God who suffered and overcame. That's our God. That is why we have hope in the middle of personal suffering is because we have a God who is there first. Now, let me ask you, if we worship God because of his blessings, will we curse him when they're gone? 
if we worship God for his blessings, will we curse him when they're gone? And if we don't curse God when our blessings are gone, like Job did not do, if we don't curse God when our blessings are gone, it speaks volumes about the quality of the hope that we possess in our soul, the quality of the eyesight of our soul, which is what gives us a platform to tell people about it. That's why people say, hey, how in the world can you go through that tragedy and not curse God? How do you do that? Tell, I need to understand that. Um, and so it gives us a platform to answer that question with respect and gentleness. Uh, your suffering is not a license to be a victim. We have been called to follow Jesus. You know, um, chapter 2, verse 21 says, You to this you have been called. Because Jesus suffered for you, you should follow in his footsteps. Now, I, there was a time in my life I was really looking for my calling. I can tell you that was probably not the one that I was looking for. But it is a calling. It's a calling on our lives to follow Jesus even in the middle of suffering. Um, chapter 3, verse 17 says, It is better to suffer for doing good. It's better to suffer for doing good if that is God's will. 419 says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If there's one word that we could use to describe victim, it's powerless. Right? Victims are powerless. If there's one word, it's powerless. At least, I think. Um, But as soon as a victim realizes that they have power, what happens? They quit being a victim. And you can see, you watch a movie, and you can see the victim, you know, and, and there's maybe a psychological change or a change in circumstances. As soon as they realize that they have power, they, they can't be a victim anymore. We, we are never powerless as a believer. We are not victims. Stuff does not happen to us. And no matter how we suffer, we have a unique privilege in that we know and we trust that God knows that he cares. And further, that he's even called us into the suffering that we experience. Our God is all-powerful, and it has been an act of our will. We have chosen to surrender our will to his. That's why we're not victims. It's because it, it is our choice. We choose to surrender to him. Stuff doesn't happen to us. We make a decision to trust what God allows. <clears throat> I love this quote from Viktor Frankl, who was, uh, suffered greatly as a Jew in Nazi concentration camps. He says, everything can be taken from a man except one thing, the last of human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. That's the last human freedom. I think one of the reasons I'm highlighting this is because just like that guy I told you I interviewed, I think it's easy sometimes for Christians to sign up for a victim, a, just a, a victim mentality. Everybody's out to get me. Um, you know, Satan's out to get me, and you know, it's, it's just it's a tough life. And you know, where everybody's against me, and I'm just barely hanging on. And I don't get that from Peter. That's not the that's not the way that Peter presents the Christian life. Now, I do understand that. I, I want to say that I think that suffering in the Christian life can go sideways in this way. That when we have not tasted that the Lord is good, 
When we haven't tasted that the Lord is good, and just like Peter says, and, and God is, is just a harsh taskmaster, and he's requiring this suffering of us, and his will just becomes kind of a, a kind of divine fatalism where I'm just, I've got to do this thing. Um, and there's no sense of loving relationship and the story that the moment is set in and the glory that we are invited to share. Uh, but I will say, as long as, as, long as, as long as I am a victim in my own life, as long as I remain a victim, whether it's of you know, suffering or whatever it is, as long as I remain a victim, I cannot experience God's grace. Because victims believe that it's all up to them. They're powerless. You can't be a victim. You cannot be a victim when you believe that God is in control. I don't think you can. I don't think you can be a victim while you believe God is in control. All right. Your suffering is a revelation for God's glory. Again, um, I was, I was um, having a conversation with my kids. You know, we were just talking about, actually I was talking about that verse in Matthew where he says, um, by your good works, everybody should see that, you know, who you are and glorify God, who is in, your Father who is in heaven. And, you know, that's a really comfortable thing to say. I'm going to do good things, and God's going to get some glory. That feels good and right, doesn't it? Um, uh, uh, you know, it appeals to, you know, our sense of accomplishment. But here Peter says, he says, if you share in Christ's sufferings, you can be really glad because his glory is going to be revealed. That doesn't feel quite as little. It's a, it, it, it's, that one's a little tougher for me to get behind. You know, we don't typically pray that, you know, when, when we want to show the world how good God is, suffering is not the platform that we choose, that we would choose, that I would choose. I'm not going to put that on you, but it's not the one I would choose to make that happen. Um, second to the last point, you are in a battle, you're in a battle, and suffering is expected. Part of preparing our minds for action is to expect that we're going to be tested. Peter says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that's going to come upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. He said, rejoice when you get to share Christ's sufferings. If you are insulted in the name of Christ, you're blessed. I know I've already mentioned the insanity of God, but there's a really unique story that when I read it a while back captured me. Um, Nick was talking about interviewing uh, believers in um, Russia that had suffered under uh, communist Russia. And, you know, these guys were just telling these incredible stories of unbelievable uh, circumstances and the way that God's power had been so real to them. And it, it was just, it, you know, it really, um, it, was, it was just really impactful for Nick. And he said, he said guys, have you never thought about writing a book about this? And the, 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 the old believer that he was talking to just looked at him and said, Nick, why would we do that? Have you never read the Bible? And he was dead serious. And Nick was a guy, you know, he's been a missionary half his life. And, you know, it, so it was, that was very humiliating for him. But he's, Nick, have you never read the Bible? And he said, persecution for us is as normal as the sun coming up in the east. We're not home yet. We have to expect opposition. 
final point is remember that you're not alone in your suffering. Chapter 5, verse 9 says, remember, it says, when we suffer for Christ, we join with a brotherhood throughout time who have stood firm in times of adversity for their faith in Christ. Peter says, we do have an adversary. He says it here in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, we do have an adversary, and he is like a lion that's roaring about trying to find somebody to devour. But he says this. He says, you can resist him, being firm in your faith. Satan is the author of suffering. God may allow it, just like he does other things that Satan tries to do. He knows how to take his plans and and turn them on himself. And that's what he does with suffering. In fact, Nick, another quote I think he says is, is, uh, persecution is the seed from which the church grows. Um, Satan knows how to turn suffering on Satan's head and use it for his own advantage. I'm sorry, Jesus knows how to turn suffering on his head and use it for his own advantage. So I don't know... I don't know, I, I, I don't get the sense that this church is under incredible suffering. I, you know, I think we've, we've, most of us have it relatively well in most areas. I hope, though, that today that this was an encouragement to charge up your endurance level. We were made for battle. Have you ever noticed that? We really were made we're uniquely designed for for challenge, for 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 uh, um, you know. If you look, if you look in every every story you read, everything that captures your heart and your imagination, you find a hero, you find a guide, and you find a villain. And, 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 and there's a reason why that captures the human imagination and the human soul as it does. Because that's, we're in that battle. And in your story, you're the hero. Yet the hero is never the most competent. It's never the smartest or the wisest. You've been given a guide. Jesus said, I will never leave you, forsake you. I'm leaving, but I am sending someone else and it's, and it's going to be even better. And we've got a villain, and we know who he is. Um, so I hope that uh, your hope has been realigned um, to, to the fullness of the grace that's going to be revealed. Uh, so whatever, but whatever you are going through right now, wherever you find yourself, um, know this, that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, confirm you, establish you, and strengthen you. To him be the glory forever. Amen.